very warm. I'm very happy to be able to welcome you to a new video today. And today I would like to explore the English language. If we're looking at this world map here, we can see that English is spoken all across the world as an official language here, of course, on the British Isles, as well as here in large parts of North America, with the exception of Quebec, where French is used. We can see it here in the Caribbean, even in South America, as well as in large parts, especially of Southern Africa. An islands in the Indian Ocean, in the Pacific Ocean, Australia and New Zealand, and well, India is listed here as um, under other Indo-European languages. Of course, English is quite prominent here too. And here we only have the official languages, Staatssprachen. But beyond that, a lot of people know English and use it, sometimes even in their day-to-day -day life. Altogether, it's estimated that there are about 1.3 billion speakers. 370 million are native language speakers. It's especially Australia, New Zealand, the British Isles and North America. Plus almost a billion people who have English as a second or foreign language. And we're gonna look a little bit into what that means. But since you're watching my channel, I think you are, like me, quite interested in the history of English. So let's start there. We've already seen that English is a Indo-European language. Let's see which one's the best map to use. Alright, so let's start at the beginning. We already know that English is an Indo-European language. It is closely related to the Germanic languages. In fact, it was brought to the British Isles by Germanic tribes, most notably the Anglo-Saxons, who originated here from Northern Europe, roughly from Denmark and Northern Germany. 
came to the British Isles in the early Middle Ages, so 5th, 6th century of our time. The most closely related languages to England can also be found here. Frisian and Low German or Low Saxon, which are spoken here. There's also Scots in Scotland, which is almost a sister language, but developed later. Old English was very close to German. If you've learned German, you know that there are grammatic genders, that you have to remember the cases, that you have to change the endings of the words, so you have to change the verb forms, the forms of the noun, of adjectives, you have different forms of the article, so it can be difficult to learn, it's quite complex. And that's what Old English looked like. Eventually, let's see if we can see this here somewhere. Right, it's not included here, but that's fine. If we think about the late Middle Ages, we know that the Vikings also came from this area and settled in England. By that time, the language of the North had already evolved into a different form. It was related, but a little bit different. This was Old Norse. Especially in this area here, so Northumbria, roughly speaking, um, the Vikings settled and created a Dane law. And once you settle down, you need to be able to speak with the other people who live here. Old Norse and Old English were, as I said, very similar. So it was kind of possible to speak to one another, but of course all of these endings made it a bit difficult. And over time, these endings started to get lost. It's easier to always use the same form of the verb, you know, if you just say to go, instead of saying uh, ich gehe, du gehst, ihr geht, like in German. Just use one form. It's still understandable and it's quite easy to talk across this small but still a language barrier. We don't really know how many Norse words moved into English during that time, but they are some really basic words of the language, like the form are or the form they. So if I say they are, it's for example very closely to Norwegian where it's the er. So you can hear that this is the same root. But also words like bag or window or knife. And if we skip forward again, we have another invasion, this time from this area here, the Normans. Now, this is fascinating. The Normans are also Vikings, but they were in the north of France for quite a while at this point, and they assimilated. So once they moved to England, they were already speaking French be it with certain Norse elements to it. But roughly we can say that they brought with them the French language. 
At this point, the language changed again. So Old English became Middle English. We have another reduction in simplification. These grammatical endings started disappearing. Um, we can see that the pronunciation changes and we can see that a lot of these normal words are being um, transferred into the English language, which really enriches the vocabulary. It's particularly in the area of law, of politics, also in religion, but for example also in cuisine. This is the reason why the animal is called cow, but what you have on the plate is called beef. The same with chicken and poultry. So something that's very typical for English is this use of synonyms. You have both a Germanic word that's often a bit simpler, a word that you would learn earlier as you're learning the language, and you have a word of romance origin that's usually higher in register, so you would use it in a more formal context. English changed so much at the time, there's actually a hypothesis that says it's a Creole language. So a language that was specifically created as many different peoples um, began to talk to one another and had to find a middle ground with their languages. It's a hypothesis, so one way of looking at the history of English. At around 1500, English kind of looks the way it does now. It does not yet sound the way it does now. There's the great vowel shift coming, um, but that's a different story and leads to England having kind of very strange spelling for the way that it's, um, for the way that it's pronounced. If we skip ahead to the late 19th century, we see that we have English spoken here in the entirety of the British Isles. So also in Scotland and in Ireland and Wales, where you would still have Gaelic languages in use. This specific map here is of the British Empire, showing the commercial routes of the world and ocean currents. It's from 1895 by John Castle. And as fascinating as these world trade routes are at the time. What I want to look at here is the British Empire. It doesn't quite map with the use of English today, but I think it's a really fascinating look into the history of the language. Of course, here with the United States, we see that they are already in a post-colonial state, so they do not belong to England, but Canada is marked as part of the British Empire, and we can see the bits in uh, South America, in Africa, especially large parts here in the south, 
on the Indian subcontinent. So this is pretty much what we saw earlier when it comes to today's use of English. Here on the bottom we also have a closer look at the Caribbean with the Bahamas here, Jamaica, Trinidad and Tobago In the Mediterranean we also have Cyprus And on a side note, I really like the way this is drawn Of course, we also have a British interest, for example, in Egypt and Sudan, even if this is not listed here It's somewhat difficult to really depict the history and the spread of English on one map And there have been different attempts to do so And I'm gonna look at one that I think has been pretty influential And that really gives us a good idea also what it means um, in terms of how the language was used Which function it had I just have to apologize, this is a study book that I've borrowed and unfortunately someone's been studying quite hard with the use of it so we have some notes in it but I want to look at this part here this is Kakru's free circle model of world Englishes It's from 1992, so of course the numbers are a little outdated at that point But that's not important What he tried to show is the different uses of English as a language What function it has in state And he says there are three circles First of all, the inner circle of course we have the UK But we also have the USA, Canada, Australia and New Zealand These are the places where English is generally the native language So with the UK of course that is quite obvious But for the USA or Australia that also means that they were colonized in a way where the colonizers stayed there and created their own society and their own state and adopted this language In the outer circle on the other hand we have for example Bangladesh, Ghana, India, Nigeria, Pakistan, the Philippines and Singapore So these countries were also colonized but not in the same way as the countries of the inner circle English has often been adopted there as an official language It's not necessarily a native language But it is used in official capacity It means that it has been institutionalized So it serves country internal functions And these countries might also be developing their own standards 
So at some point we might have an official Nigerian language. The reasons why these former colonies of the UK still use English is also interesting. If we look at Nigeria, for example, this is a really huge country that has more than 500 languages within its borders. In order for everyone to be able to communicate with one another and so as not to put one group at an advantage, the state uses English. So if you want to communicate with the state, also often if you want to do business, um, if you go to a place of higher education, it will all happen in English. And it allows everyone to be able to get along with each other more easily. Of course, that doesn't really tell us much about how well people speak English. There is a group of people in Nigeria that speak English fluently on native speaker level. There might be people who speak sort of rudimentary English. There might also be people who don't speak any English at all. So it really depends. It differs. Which also means it's quite difficult to really get to one uh, number. Like I said earlier, there are about 1.3 billion speakers of English. But it's a little difficult to classify how good does your English have to be in order for you to count as an English speaker. Um, and if you change these parameters a little, then of course these numbers might inflate or deflate, depending on how you adjust. The same is true, of course, also for India, for example, with its large population. And then we also have an expanding circle. You can tell that the model is a little older, it still features the USSR. But it also has here China, Egypt, Indonesia, Israel, Japan, Korea, Nepal, Saudi Arabia, Taiwan and Zimbabwe. The difference to the outer circle is that English is not an official language here. It's not officially the language of the state, not of education, but it still is widely used in different functions. So let's see what else it says here. Some of the advantages are that the model is based on geography and history rather than on the way speakers currently identify with and use English. So that gives us a good look at a very complex issue. It also says an increasing number of speakers in the expanding circle use English for a very wide range of purposes, as we've just said, including social interaction with native speakers, and even more frequently with other non-native speakers from both their own and different L1s, so different native languages, both in their home country and abroad. This, of course, has changed quite a lot now that we have internet and we can all communicate with one another. In 1992, the situation here in Austria, for example, was a little different. And of course, there's a grey area between the inner and the outer circles. 
relaxer between these two here. In some outer circle countries, English may be the first language learned for many people and may be spoken in the home rather than used purely for institutional purposes, such as education and government. Said that earlier. And the gray area between outer and expanding circle, as we've just said. The important part is also that many speakers grow up bilingual or multilingual and the different languages fulfill different functions in their daily lives. It's of course not only true for English, but also for many other languages. And like I said, there's a difficulty in using the model to define speakers in terms of their proficiency. A native speaker may have limited vocabulary and low grammatical competence, while the reverse may be true for a non-native speaker. So it's it's all a little complex with languages. Okay, we've already looked at this. If we look specifically at the use of English in an international context, or as a lingua franca, I think it's interesting to have a look at the European Union. A lingua franca is defined as a language of communication between people who have different mother languages and maybe don't share any other languages, so they switch to a foreign language for both of them. The EU allows people to communicate in their native languages. That was a little easier at first, but now that almost the entire continent is in the EU, that means you have a great number of languages. People will communicate in Swedish, in Finnish, in Polish, Bulgarian, Greek, Italian, Portuguese, Dutch, etc. The EU accommodates for this by translating most of its texts and also by interpreting, for example, in Parliament. However, for the day-to-day -day work in the institutions, it's a little difficult to use all of these languages and to sort of always be accompanied by interpreters. So people tend to switch to English or sometimes French. In fact, most of the texts of the EU these days are written in English and then translated into the other languages. However, there are hardly any native speakers involved here, especially after Brexit. There's only Ireland that uses English in a native speaker context. And I'm sure that most people speak really great English who work in the EU. However, you might still have interferences from your native languages. If French people speak English, you know, you might have some French pronunciation. You might have certain false friends between English and French that lead to a technically wrong use of a word. The same is true for German or for Polish. And these are different language families too. 
But the idea is that if in this context you use English, you want to be able to successfully communicate with each other. So while, for example, the word aktuell and actual have different meanings, if Germans use actual meaning as it is now, so aktuell, the German version of the word, it might be adopted by other people too because it's understood. Someone from England might say, well, that's not right. But as long as people get the correct meaning from it, then in a lingua franca context, this is acceptable. It's not a deficient form of the language, but it is a functional form of the language. Typical for English as a lingua franca are, for example, redundancies. So you might add a second word that means the same thing, just to make sure the other person gets the point. You might add articles or leave out articles, maybe depending on how you would do it in your native language. Um, you might also use words with a slightly different meaning, like with aktuell. But this always really depends on the area. So English as a lingua franca will look differently here in the European Union than, for example, in a Southeast Asian context or in a African context. And as you can imagine, the translators of the EU aren't too happy with that. There's a really fascinating document in which they list basically an endless number of words um, and explain how they should be correctly used. But I think it's too late for that. So we might see that as a form of international English. And I don't know about you, but in the last couple of years, I've sometimes heard people ask, you know, jokingly or not, why the EU still uses English now that the United Kingdom is gone. But as we have seen now, English here serves a different function. It has nothing to do with how big a number of native speakers there are. In fact, Native speakers have been shown to sometimes be at a disadvantage in a lingua franca context because they assume that it's the native language that's spoken, but it's actually a different form with different ways to communicate. So if you're not a native speaker and you use English online and you're worried about making mistakes, don't. As long as you can get across what you're trying to say and you successfully communicate, you're good. Okay, I hope that little trip down history and into some current organizations has been interesting to you. I hope you can sleep well. And I'll see you again next week.